When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The title race is heating up. Hello and welcome to episode 29, yes 29, the numbers are getting bigger each week of the Real Football Cast. I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual we'll be discussing what has been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. But in addition to that there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. Joining me tonight I have two top guests. First up is the return of Paul Garricky runs the excellent Over the Bar website. Paul, it's been a while since we last spoke in Italy, but how have you been, my friend? I've been good, Dan. Thanks. Uh, how are you? Yeah, all good, mate. It's, uh, looking forward to spending another 60 minutes or so chatting football, so hopefully you're um, willing to do the same. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. And also joining me tonight is, um, after such an impressive run out on Thursday's show, is Matthew, our resident Fulham fan. Now, Matthew's acting as, I guess, a super sub on this episode because I had someone drop out late. So, big thanks on that front. But let's hope he turns in another match-winning performance tonight. Yeah, no worries. Uh, for these, uh, for the older people, think of it as Denmark in 1992. I think it's a better analogy. <laughs> that's a fantastic analogy. Great start, Matthew. That's, that's why we're having one. Excellent analogy there. So, I best do some social media bits first. Otherwise, I'll be talking to the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Anything show-related, please send it my way. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can also find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's a game that sees betting turn on its head, with the focus being on the loser. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. Especially as there's a new prize pool, which guarantees a winner, £1,000 as per usual, but it's also free to enter. There's literally nothing stopping you. So the odds of winning are great. They're even better if you sign up. Right then, without without the way, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? I guess we have to go where the title race is, really, because after mine and Matthew's midweek madness episode a few days ago, it's fair to say there's been a couple more twists and turns since then. So, Paul, obviously, you're a Man City fan, so there's not going to be a lot of, I guess, neutrality. But are you <laughs> feeling more confident in the race of the title now? I mean, the margin's down to three. You've got Everton on Wednesday, which I guess we can't really sort of cover because I don't know when people listen to this, it might be dated. But if we sort of look at the, the wider picture, is the target ready and locked on to be struck? Um, do you know, I the first point you made about feeling confident, I'm not entirely sure I, I feel any better or worse oh, really? than I did. Yeah. Um, and I tell you why it's it's more like you said. There's the Everton game coming up uh, this week, but also Chelsea. 
Fair, um, fair point. And, uh, we're still in the FA Cup. Champions League games are you know only a couple of weeks away as well. So we have to stretch the squad a, a bit thinner than um, what Liverpool will be doing. Granted, we probably have a bit more depth than they do. Um, but I think we've also got you know a couple more distractions uh, over the next few weeks. And looking at the fixture list coming up to the end of the season, it's you know they, they've got quite a good run really as well. Uh, I think they've got to go to Old Trafford, haven't they? Um, but so do we. Um, and other than that, I, I, I can't really see them dropping too many points. So could there be a sense, Paul? Of the only thing that's going to stop City are City themselves. Maybe too many fronts they're trying to deal with. Because if we look at Liverpool now, down to two fronts really. Um, obviously, going out of the FA Cup in the third round, whisper it quietly, and it wasn't really <laughs> many tears sort of shed. So obviously, Pep should be commended, I guess, for trying to go for all fronts. But could that be to your detriment? Uh, yeah, it possibly could be, and. Last season, uh, you know, that was definitely his intention as well. It was just the game at Wigan where we went down to 10 men and conceded a, a good goal. But credit to Wigan that night, they deserved the win. This season, it's a, it's a little bit different in the sense that we're not running away with the lead uh, of the of the league. sorry. Um, and so we've got to keep our options open. It could be that, you know, the FA Cup in, you know, three, four weeks' time, he decides that he's got to prioritise the league. If we get... You know, level with Liverpool. Three points is nothing at this stage, obviously. Um, but the Champions League is what the, the club's hierarchy are really pressuring him for. I mean, we've, we've got a trip to Wembley at the end of February, but that's just one game. It's it's the FA Cup that could add, you know, uh, you know, a handful more games to your to your fixtures as well as the Champions League. So um, it's great that Liverpool have dropped a couple of points, but our own mistakes uh, against Newcastle. Leicester at home, Crystal Palace at home. They're what are, I can see a couple more of those sort of results slipping in for us, which won't do us any favours. Yeah, because Matthew, you mentioned on Thursday that we sort of looked at Liverpool's buffer as it stood at the time was uh, five points. But then you also said that you know there's still margin for error in terms of Liverpool and that City, they don't look invincible. They're not invincible. So as you sort of just intimated, Paul, they're not going to necessarily go on like a monster 14-game run, are they? Uh, no, not no, not indeed. And there's you know, as the gap still stands at the moment, it's still three points. So it is still very much in Liverpool's hand. And you know, as I said, it's not down to Manchester City to go on a 13-game winning run because I think even Paul, in the most optimistic of terms, knows that there's going to be drop points somewhere down the line. Um, you know, you mentioned you've got Chelsea coming up on the weekend. You've still got to go to Old Trafford and Manchester United seem to have sort, sorted themselves out at Absolutely. this moment in time. So it's so it's not going to be it's not going to be a very easy. I don't know. Have Man City got to play Spurs at any stage? Yeah, left still, still got yeah. host Spurs as well. So, so we we're not still 100% sure whether or not Spurs what frame of mind they're going to be at any one stage. Spurs are, Spurs are a very dangerous team. So yeah, it's. Everyone's sort of talking about Liverpool, how they're, they're starting to bottle it now. But let us not forget that they do still, it is still very much in their hands. It's not like in 2013-14 where, yes, they had, um, I think, like a seven-point gap or whatever. But Man City had three games in hand. At the moment, it is still, you know, level amount of games played. But it is still very much in their hands. So... I haven't list gone through the whole thing, but I don't know off the top of my head who's got the the quote unquote harder run in, as it were. Who's got to play 
um, lower table sides if they're home and away, so on and so forth. But I still think it is very much in Liverpool's hands. But Manchester City, as they've shown, are not going to be going away uh, without a fight. Yes, and if I stay with you, Matthew, that leads me to Sunday because we mentioned on Thursday that, well, I think it was me actually, I said City were going to be something of a wounded animal and you almost felt sorry for the team that had to face them next after their sort of defeat to Newcastle. So it was Arsenal who picked the short straw. It's fair to say they were certainly second best at the Etihad, weren't they? Because, I mean, any game plan you have, you can't legislate going behind after 49 seconds, can you? Uh, no, indeed. But I think that some level of credit needs to be given to Arsenal for at least showing a little bit of fight. Cause yeah, that's other, true. Because other, other sides have sort of capitulated and threw in the game plan. But they did, you know, okay to some extent. And in any other day, uh, I can't remember if it was Aguero's second or third goal uh, that came that went in off his hand. Third. On another on another day, that might that might be given, you know, as a free kick. Although I personally didn't see anything wrong with it. Did but so. the level of refer but the level of refereeing these days, you just never know. Um, but yeah, um, I just quickly switched to Arsenal. I think that it does show that Unai Emery still has a little bit of work to go. But in fairness, they Arsenal in the past have gone to Manchester and gone to the big clubs and been and been incredibly poor. At least here, you're showing there's a little bit more improvement because there was a little bit more fight in the Arsenal team. So it just shows that they're not you know they're not willing to back down you know, as easy as they used to. Yeah, I guess that's a fair enough statement. You know, they didn't shame themselves or, you know, embarrass themselves. It could have, on another day, been five to sit if they were really in the mood. But at the same time, Paul, we talk about, you know, not legislating after continuing after 49 seconds. Also, City's second goal, Mustafi was woefully playing people on side. There was so much distance. I mean, you'd be infuriated if you're Unai Emery because, like I say, any sort of tactical plan that you've worked over on the week is just undone by a moment of madness there, isn't it? Yeah, and do you know what makes that um, defensive? I'm not even going to call it an error, just stupidity, yes. it? not even to, to rush out like that. And what makes it worse is um, when I was at the game, all right, we'd scored within the first minute, but for the good 20 minutes or so, it didn't look as if Arsenal were, were phased by that. They were still, they still had a lot of uh, drive, a lot of energy. I was so impressed with uh, Lacazette and Aubameyang for the work off the ball for two strikers. Um, you know how much effort they were putting in, and it really was their own sort of undoing with Mustafi's mistake. And then I think it was also the, the clearance um, later on that sort of started the move for it was our a Wobie, third wasn't goal. It? That, sorry, yeah, yeah, for our first goal. Yeah, it was their own. Um, you know, it was their own doing that, that brought on the problems for them. So you can't legislate for it, but at the same time, as much as uh, I, I do have uh, a bit of. Time for errors. The the thing is, Arsenal were trying, and then it was the second goal. They seemed to give up. You could see it. They were very impressive first twenty five minutes of the game. And if you saw the the body language and the lack of effort in the last twenty five minutes of the game, it, it was chalk and cheese. It was it was ridiculous. We're a very flaky team, I'd say. Um, and it was kind of their season so far summed up in ninety minutes in a lot of ways. I don't think. I know you might like to hear this as a Spurs fan, but I, I don't think uh, Arsenal really have that much uh, hope to, to finish it top five this season. Or the top six is going to be the best they can hope for, really. Do you know what, Paul? That was going to be my next question, was did you think that was Arsenal's season in a microcosm? You've literally taken the words out of my mouth, because <laughs> that's exactly how I saw it, is the fact that Aubameyang Lacazette, on any given day, they're really sort of good. You know, they'll be a handful for anyone, which they were against City. Didn't yeah, quite get the yeah. break of the chances, but... 
doesn't matter what they do going forward. They're not a team which has the sort of swagger where it doesn't matter if we will concede three because we'll score four. They're not quite there. So no, no. it's just their defence is letting them down, really. So I think um, with the transfer window, Matthew, and there's not been a lot of additions, do you look at that sort of six squads and think Arsenal are definitely now the weakest? Oh, that's a bit of a tough one. Weakest out of the... It's... It's still a compliment because I think any club, any team outside the top six would die, would kill, or die to have to have. But yes, I I think I think you'd have to say by there's some of it is part down to Arsenal and part down to just how well the other teams have developed. And this is even you know without mentioning the fact that Tottenham haven't signed anyone in the past in the past two transfer windows. yeah, I think I think yeah, I think he would have to, but it's but it's weird to say that when you have the likes of you know Petr Cech is your backup goalkeeper and he's not the same as he was ten years ago, but it's still Petr Cech, a very fine goalkeeper. You've still got Mustafi, who's a World Cup winner, Özil, who's a World Cup winner, Aaron Ramsey, who's arguably one of the best central midfielders in Britain. You've got, as you said, Aubameyang and Lacazette, two very very fine strikers. You've got a good. Um, a very good academy that's coming through. It's not quite there yet in terms of players getting minutes, but there's a good academy there to work with. But yeah, it's a bit harsh on Arsenal to say that, but it is true. I think they are the weakest of the of the top six. But they do have one of the better managers of the six. I think I think it needs to be said. I think he's probably better than Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, as that probably puts him fifth. And based on this season alone, he's probably above Rich Osari. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean it's not trying to do Arsenal a disservice or a discredit, it's just literally the fact that if you had to pick six teams, which is the weakest squad, and I think by and large it is Arsenal, but by not great margins at the same time, I think the fact that they're sort of lacking money has hampered them, and it could hamper them for the next couple of windows. So it's not you know great news for the Gunners. But if we sort of move away from uh, the Etihad, and let's go down south to the London Stadium last night. The other big headline of the game week was the fact that Liverpool were held to a second straight league draw and pulled on another night. It could have been zero points, really, couldn't it? Because from the highlights yeah. I saw, I was doing another podcast last night. I felt they looked really nervy last night in East London. Yeah, they did. And it's it's been funny recently how some of the... Uh, excuses is the right word, really, that uh, their manager's been using, you know, wind, length of grass, all sorts. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Um, <laughs> But last night it, it was, they kind of looked a bit unnerved, you know, that the, the pressure seemed to be on them a bit and, and they got very lucky with um, James Milner's offside. But they've had that quite a lot in a season where the, the rubber to green's gone their way, you know, uh, a couple of times. I know it's been mentioned on uh, previous episodes and, and things with, with Salah's penalties that he's accumulated for the team. Um, a lot of them, I. Obviously, I've seen it through blue tinted glasses, but um, they, they've looked like uh, you know the, the referees seen it their way. Last night, they weren't necessarily apart from the goal incident. They, they kind of looked a bit. Um, do you remember the Crystal Palace game three uh, all where Suarez was crying? Yep. yep. It kind of there's that air about it, or there was for me watching it where they, they almost expected to steamroll a West Ham, and and it didn't go down like that. West Ham fought quite hard. I. I well, they deserved at least a, at least the point that they got. Um, I believe they they could have put a couple more chances away. But for a, bearing in mind West Ham are, are still a team that are trying to find themselves 
in a new stadium because it's it's not really designed for football and the squad you've got there uh, they, they wouldn't be um, the manager's first choice the majority of them you, uh, I think it's fair to say um, I thought, thought Liverpool were very lucky to come away with a point Matthew is there a case to be made that perhaps Liverpool have expended themselves so much in the first half of the season that they've almost overachieved and now we're almost seeing a regression to the mean where this is the kind of the, their actual real level, you know, they've put such a Herculean effort to sort of romp away in the first half of the season that they're almost running out of gas. Is that a fair statement or is that too much of an overreaction after two draws in a row? No, I think it's fair because this has been one of the criticisms of Jurgen Klopp's side is because of this so-called uh, heavy metal football. Or it, The phrase hasn't been used quite a lot, but it's still, it's still what he tries to uh, brand it as. Um, that it's such, such quick-paced football... Uh, that eventually you're gonna you're gonna get tired and there's gonna be various injuries because uh, your hamstrings or your calves basically can't take it. So yeah, it does seem that around February time is when the team started to run out of gas because they can't get used to or can't keep up with with the style of play. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's the way I sort of see it. I think they've certainly got to be concerned. I mean, Liverpool have had their own sort of. I say bad luck in inverted commas of injuries, but they've not had the worst luck, Paul. Because if you look at, say, Tottenham, you know, we're going through no uh, Harry Kane, no Deli Alley at the moment. We're trying to sort of ride that storm. Liverpool, you do get the feeling perhaps that if Mo Salah or Virgil van Dijk was injured, then the house of cards could quite quickly collapse. Absolutely. And van Dijk was the one that I was going to say, if he goes, their defence is left with, uh, is it Lovren and Matip? Um, and Matip's been out as well it, for uh, a while. I know they've had a few issues with, with the full-backs. Alexander-Arnold was out for a bit at the start of the season. Joe Gomez has got a long-term injury. But you take Virgil van Dijk out of that back four and they're not... It doesn't... You wouldn't worry about facing... You know, you would, you'd think you'd have a good opportunity of knocking a few goals in past them. Um, I think it's not unfair to say um, that the, without van Dijk... The, the, their back four is a bit suspect and it's not me sort of undermining the players that they have it's just a credit to Van Dijk and how important he's been as a signing for them that 75 million it's a lot of money but it's actually starting to look like quite a good deal for them you know financially whatever you think about the money in the game and going forward their front three Mane, Salah and Firmino they've got such great chemistry together that yeah, you'd have to sort of wonder how they would get on if one of those was to get a, a, an injury. But when when he's played, I think Shakiri's complimented them really well. Um, nobody's going through the same situation as Spurs uh, when it comes to the injuries. And, uh, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on your podcast, but um, it's, it's a case of two windows have passed now, no new signings, and Tottenham are, are still... Right up there, you know, um, fighting. And, and we were talking a minute or two ago about Arsenal having the weakest squad in the top six. Well, compare that to, you know, Tottenham's where Arsenal have invested quite heavily by their own standards and, and, and certainly compared to Spurs over the last few windows. It's, you know, it's credit to what Pochettino, beg your pardon, Pochettino's doing. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if Spurs can finish in the top four this season after what's gone on, I mean, that's almost like a almost manager of the year sort of standard. Whether he does get that award, I don't know. But, you know, that's a, an argument for a different day. But if we look at the last six games that each of City and Liverpool played, not individually, but just a quick sort of wide look at form. City have picked up 15 points. 
Liverpool 11. So, Matthew, even though City lost to Newcastle uh, last week, is it fair to say that champions have that more momentum? And also, is this a different kind of test for Pep Guardiola's men this season? Because last season, they won it at a cancer. It was almost done by this time last year, wasn't it? So the fact that if they are going to have to win it this season, they're going to have to win it from behind. So does that ask different questions of this all-star squad? Um, no, that's excellent point. I'm just trying to rack my brains. I don't think has a Pep Guardiola team ever been chasers at any point during his... I can't think of one off the top of my head. So whether or not he's used to this men, uh, mentality is is, is, a diff- is a different matter. I can't, can't really answer. But they do have the advantage of the fact they've won it before. Yes. How many of these Liber- how many of these Liverpool players have gone through a title race and know about the mental and physical strain that it puts on you? Um and one thing we sort of haven't factored into into the equation is how deep do these teams go in the Champions League? Absolutely. And how does that how does that affect things going forward? If Liverpool get knocked out in get knocked out in the first round, does that automatically give them the advantage? If Manchester City you know, get knocked out in the first round. And I heard them talk on the Sunday supplement that Manchester City really at this stage, their main aim should be the Champions League. Because you can go and win the Premier League. I know, a bit flippant to say. But you can go and win the, the Premier League any season. And you probably did it arguably the best that any team ever did it last year. So mm. what is there, what else is there to prove by winning the Premier League this year? Surely... If you want to sort of put yourself as one of the elite's all-time great ever teams, you've got to go and uh, win something in Europe. So surely that should be their priority. This is whether or not Pep Guardiola is going to actually come out and say that, or at least say to the players, "Right, yes, we did that, but we've got bigger things to focus on." So I think that's one of these things that hasn't really been mentioned in this tie race. Is where are these? Uh, you no, know, we mentioned the fixtures. Where are these fixtures? Where are these teams going to be? In two months' time, are they going to be? How many tournaments are they going to be in? And how's that? How much of a strain is that going to take on the uh, take on the squad? Paul, do you think there's a certain element of truth in the fact that the Champions League might secretly be the bigger fish to fry here? Because obviously, like I say, Champions, sorry, Premier League titles have now been delivered to the Etihad, but not conquering Europe. That's still the one thing that eludes you as the club. And you, obviously, Pep's come in with that real sort of. Um, remit in mind obviously you know it's great winning domestic silverware but you're not quite kings of Europe just yet so you know whisper it quietly is that what you're really going for I know he wants to win everything but surely if it yeah. does come to shove is it the European direction um, well I'll give you sort of two answers that sort of will, well two explanations that will shape the answer Okay. from a, the club's point of view the Champions League is the top priority it's commercially the, the biggest one. It's the one that really stamps your authority uh, in standings of, uh, you know, the, the, the branding of football, which is what the whole aim is. You know, City are out there trying to become a brand. It's not just a case of being a football club that has success. It's about getting that, um, you know, to be have your badges known as well as the McDonald's Golden Arches. From a fan point of view, and this is me being quite selfish, but I think that there's more merit in winning back-to-back Premier League titles than there is in, in winning um, you know, 16 games of a Champions League knockout uh, tournament. Now, it's a case of 38 games is a very attritional thing and it's a true sign of, of your quality if you can do that back-to-back. And it's a lot harder in the second year as reigning champions to go to places where you know, everybody wants your scalp, everyone wants to be, even the minnows really up their game, not because they, they don't want to, you know, 
say if we're playing bottom of the league Huddersfield next week, they don't want to concede 5 0 because obviously in a relegation fight it affects their goal difference and everything. But they also want to try and uh, give their fans a lift by getting a good result against the champions. So you've got a completely different challenge for the second year um, when you've just won the league. So I think that winning back to back really takes a lot more doing and gives a team more credit. And from a club perspective as well, you could say that that means that when people think of the Premier League, they see your club as being the top dog because you've done it back to back. But because of the commercial assets and, and because of the global reach, the Champions League is what the cl- club will prioritise and what they're definitely pressuring the manager to go for this season, particularly given how that the draw has been quite kind to us so far with Schalke. Um, and, and that's you know no disrespect to Schalke, it's just who else we could have got. It, it was a, quite a favourable one for us. Um, but fans definitely prioritise the Premier League. I'd also say City quite um, different to most other clubs is that we as a fan base haven't taken to the UEFA competitions uh, as well as other clubs and, and there's a lot of off the field issues that go with that uh, that we don't really need to get into here but typically there's not the same at- appetite from the fan base as there is the club towards the Champions League so it would be Premier League if you ask the fan but it'd be the uh, Champions League if you ask the club. I mean, you're absolutely right in the sense of the Premier League. It's no coincidence that no team has won it back-to-back since United in 2009. So you're right in the sense that, you know, we always say it's hard to win, harder to defend it, and it has proved exactly that over the past decade. Um, I think there's certain similar parallels to to Tottenham, where you sort of mentioned the club want to win one thing and the fans want another. Tottenham fans were up in arms when we went out of two cup competitions in the space of a week, not because we've just exited two cups, but there's almost a certain feeling that, Pochettino perhaps threw the game against Palace in terms of the line-up and people were going, well, why didn't he go full strength when we could have won a cup? And then you win two league mm. games and the end starts to like, justify the means all of a sudden because then the top four solidified. So there's no real right or wrong answer. It's not black and white. It's very subjective, but it's always sort of interesting to see what the sort of stances of a club and their fan base and that usually the two don't tend to, uh, to marry together. But if we step away from the title race and move, unfortunately, Matthew, to the bottom of the table, it's time to shed a bit more light on Fulham. So, Matthew, we spoke last week about uh, your hopes that the win over Brighton in midweek previous was not going to be won in isolation. Unfortunately, you couldn't build on it against Palace. So where did it all go wrong at Selhurst Park? Uh, Claudio Ranieri decided to change what was uh, what was yes. a winning formula. And I know... Yeah, we did. Uh, I'll talk about what Claudio Ranieri did today in a minute, but I just want to quickly touch on the game. And he, as I said, he basically ruined a winning formula, even though we're only going off one half of football against Brighton, who aren't the greatest of teams. But surely the idea has got to be, right, this worked. Let's carry on with that idea. I don't, you know, we shouldn't have gone back to five at the back or or three at the back, however however you see it. We need to stick with what was working against Brighton. Now, uh, as I said last week, it sort of struck as a um, season as what happened when we had Mark Hughes in charge, and basically the players—I don't want to say revolted, but basically went up to Mark Hughes and said, "Your style of play isn't working. We're going back to what did us well under Roy Hodgson." And it seemed that way again, as, as I said last week. It seemed that way against Brighton. The players went to Ranieri and said, "Your way's not working. We're going back to what happened under Slavica Kanovic," and it seemed to that idea seemed to have lasted only 45 minutes and you know we, we I, put, I think i put it in the loser pool thing last week it just shows something that wilfred zaha his incredible non-losing record or winning record or whatever it is for crystal palace how important it is to them 
the, the 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 first game where he's out for them and we can't and we can't beat them. It just it just strikes of something. Now you mentioned Claudio Ranieri and it's, something's come out in the press today, and I really sort of want to um, I really want to get into this. He basically told or said about Alexander Mitrovic that if he uh, plays well and scores sort of ten to fifteen goals this season, that even if we're relegated, he can get himself a move to a big club. Now that just sort of came across as he as the manager doesn't really care about the club he's basically only looking after he's only really looking after himself and if any no an outsider won't know this but the way that alexander mitrovic has endeared himself to the fans and we've endeared himself to him it's something that hasn't really been seen probably since the europa since the europa league side of someone right he gets it he really wants to fight for this club, which some Alexander Mitrovic has. And Claudio Ranieri in February is basically selling him off. Basically saying, right, even if we're relegated, he's automatically gone. Rather than saying, um, we we are, would ideally like to keep hold of him, but if an offer comes in, then we may not be able to refuse. He's basically already getting rid of him. And the fact that he says, you know, he could go to a good team... What does that say about you? The fact that you think that the club you have is a bad club surely should be on you to turn us from a bad club, if you so perceive it that way, into a good club. And a lot of people have said that this whole quote got taken out of context because of Radieri, um is English isn't his first language. And I don't really buy into that because he spent three or four years, whatever it was, at Chelsea, 18 months at Leicester and six months with us. So that's about five years in England. I'm not buying that. I'm not buying for a second that this was lost in translation. He should know his English by now. So it just really sticks of Claudio Ranieri doesn't really care about the club and doesn't really care about the players because he knows that they're all off. He knows they're all off in the summer rather than trying to keep them. And, you know, he's on a multi-year contract whether or not he sees himself as the man to bring us back up, I personally think there's an argument for it. It it just struck it just struck the wrong chord with many of the fans at what is a really important and crucial time in the club. Paul, if you were a Fulham fan, would you be worried by those comments? Um, <laughs> I'm not so sure about worried, but I'd be a little bit disheartened by it. Worried? Um, no, I think Claudio Ranieri is the type of manager who, yeah, yeah, he's quite honest and he's probably chosen his words quite badly there but he definitely puts all of his uh, effort into the job he's doing um, he's, he's not chosen his words wisely there that's the sort of thing that maybe he should be saying behind closed doors to a player like Mitrovic Yeah I guess though Paul even if Fulham don't stay up Mitrovic will still be in the shot window because you'd imagine a fair few other Premier League teams will be willing to take a punt on him should the cottages go down yeah, and I was surprised that Newcastle were willing to sell him, to be honest with you. Um, but, I mean, they, they've done all right with swapping Dwight Gale for Salman Rondon, haven't they? Um, he's certainly a, a player who could fit in well at the Premier League level. I think Fulham have done some good business in bringing in Schurler on a you know a loan deal, and there's no, no real loss there. Um, but their issue's not necessarily been the fact that the strike force isn't working. It's also the, the defending. Um, but yeah, Mitrovic could play at any number of clubs in the Premier League. Um, so I would be, I wouldn't be surprised if, regardless of what happens, if there are offers coming in for him. Actually, Matthew, talking of Fulham and comments, what's this about Shirley having to refute comments that he's offered Fulham go down? What's it? Any mileage in that one? 
Um, I think this is one that has been lost in translation, but more by the fans themselves rather than rather than what said. The way he basically phrased it has been that if Fulham are relegated, um, he automatic he's automatically going back to Borussia Dortmund, which I think has sort of been misinterpreted. Rather than him saying if Fulham go down, I'm automatically off. Well, that is what he's saying. But I think it's more a relegation clause in his contract because Brissy Dorman don't want him playing in the second tier of English football. So I think it's just a, cl- a clause in there that basically said if Fulham go down, then we automatically get him back because he's on a two year he's on a two year loan. So I think that's just something that's been badly worded and fans have and fans have misinterpreted now. Not as as opposed to a Claudio Ranieri, which I don't think has been misinterpreted. Okay, maybe some translators might be required at Craven Cottage then. But if we t- stay about um, talking of the shop window, staying in London, what about Crystal Palace, Matthew? They pulled off a very late signing in the uh, January window in Michi Batshuayi. So could this finally be the goal scorer the Eagles will be looking for in the short term at least? Oh, absolutely. I thought that was a stunning bit of business by, by Crystal Palace. And I'm amazed... The, he, I'm amazed he actually ended up at Crystal Palace because yes. there was talks about you know he wanted to go to Ever, uh, Everton was in there. Spurs I thought would have been the ideal situation for him, but obviously Chelsea didn't want to let him go on loan to Spurs. I think West Ham were in there as well. But how Crystal Palace have managed to pull that off is phenomenal business. I think Roy Hodgson and the uh, transfer team need to get a hell of a lot of a hell of a lot of plaudits for for pulling that off. And yeah. It, at least take some of the heat off Christian Benteke because whether or not they're going to play them, you know, as a two up top or Batshuayi playing off Benteke, it does sort of, as I said, just take the pressure off because if Benteke doesn't score, then we know we've got a very adequate player who's, who's who can get the goals for them. So even if he's not scoring, he could set up goals for Batshuayi and that will sort of take take the load off him a bit. I guess it is in a sense, Paul uh, Batshuayi. He's also in the shot window because if he scores goals that keep Palace up or keep the head above water. He then creates a whole new wave of interest from Premier League clubs and abroad. Or Chelsea could finally go, do you know what? Let's actually make him a member of their first team squad. So it's a, pretty much a win-win in, for all parties if Batshuayi can actually deliver the goals. Yeah, absolutely. completely agree with that. And I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up at one of the Milan clubs if he has a good uh, good season. I know that they were interested in him last summer. So, um, yeah, he's, he's got, you know, six months, not even that, to uh, get his head down and get a few goals. Like Matthew said, it's a, a great bit of business for Crystal Palace, but it's also a really good move for him. Whether he plays, like you say, up front with Benteke or is, uh, in a slightly different role, uh, it doesn't really matter because he, he, he'll be given the, the chance to, to improve himself. And I think the fans at, at Sellers Park will really take to him because he's a different option. He's a bit more mobile and he'll link up well with the likes of Townsend and Zaha. At the same time, if he does score those goals, then Chelsea may well decide just to cash in because their asset has then increased further in value, especially if they go with a long-term signature of Gonzalo Higuain. And the Argentine got off the mark for his new club with a brace against Huddersfield. Matthew, how much would that 5-0 flashing come from the right act that Mauricio Sarri served up after the defeat to Bournemouth? And how much would that have been because it's simply Huddersfield? Um, I think it's I think it's about fifty fifty. Um, yes, it, yes, it was Huddersfield, but at the same time, it does it would have given a lot of players the chance to actually go out and prove prove themselves and say yes, this is Huddersfield. But at the same time, 
they have to still they still have to go out and do and do their duty. And I think Gonzalo Wayne obviously showed the fact that he may have just been the the missing piece of the puzzle because he's been you know, one of the not elite but one of the good strikers in the world uh, for a bit of a long time. Even though he's, even though he's getting on a bit, and maybe maybe as I you know as I said, maybe he's just the missing piece of the puzzle. And this finally is what what gets Chelsea back back on track for a while they were playing with Eden Hazard as a false nine whereas now they have a target man and it allows Eden Hazard to sort of play a little bit more freely rather than taking on all the uh, striking responsibilities so it you know, off, off, off the back of one game it appears to be a, a very shrewd move by them I wonder if Higuain you know he's obviously there on loan until the end of the season is there a case Paul that perhaps he might get I don't know 9-10 goals has a good season and then Chelsea say well, thanks for your efforts. You've been the perfect stopgap in this sort of second half of the season, but now we're going to go and try and get someone younger who could be at the club for longer. Is there any possibility that might happen? Or they, if they do have a good sort of stint out of Higuain, he then gets a full crack at next season? Because I guess you have to consider he'll be 31-32 next season. So is there any real value in him getting a permanent deal come the summer? Um, I think that that is something that will depend very much on the manager. Because what Gonzalo Higuain's brought to Chelsea isn't just the fact that he is a, a top-draw striker. He, he's, he's bringing in the fact that he knows how the manager wants to play. And I think what has been an issue... I, I don't believe that the, the 5-0 thrashing of, of Huddersfield was the Chelsea squad reacting to the dressing down that they had uh, after the 4-0 loss to Bournemouth. I think there's still work to be done for Sarri in terms of getting the players to buy into his format, which is showing in the way that... Um, Jorginho keeps getting caught out in possession. You know, Jorginho is Sarri's man. He's been brought in to be that man in the middle of the park, really, to, to sort of dictate the play as well. Um, and the likes of Hazard want to play their own game. That's my observations. Um, if Sarri is still there in the summer, I think he will do everything he can to get uh, Higuain on a 12-18 month deal or so um, permanently because not only does he bring you goals but he buys into the manager's mentality and that's been something that, that Conte, I don't think really, aside from his title in the season, I don't think he really won over the, the players in that sense and managed to really stamp his authority on it with the exception of, of getting Moses and uh, Alonso to to work their you know backsides off on the, the wide positions as uh, flying fullbacks. Um, so if if the manager's still there, uh, which there's still some doubt about because apparently Hazard has a lot of power at that club and isn't the best of friends with him, um, then yeah, I think Higuain will stay on a permanent deal. Yeah, I think that's a very fair, fair point, actually. It might be the manager, whoever that is, dictates whether Higuain stays or not. But that win on a Saturday sees Chelsea move back into fourth place as the race for the final Champions League place now intensifies. It's Man United nipping at their heels now as Oli stays unbeaten. The Red Devils got the better of Leicester on Sunday. But Matthew, is it fair to say that they weren't at their best at the King Power? No, but I I mentioned this last week that their draw against Burnley showed the thing of United of old. This is just a continuation of United of old because what, what do we say all those years under, under Sir Alex Ferguson? Man United don't have to be perfect, but they can grind out a result against the best of them. And my word, they managed to grind, they managed to grind out a result there in, in you know, not exactly the best going forward, but once they got the goal, they were very, very good at the back. So it's 
it is just another mark on no, Paul's not gonna like me saying this, but this is another mark on saying Manchester United are back to <laughs> to some extent. Whether or not they're gonna be back fully, whether or not Jose Mourinho left them in such a big hole that you know they can't they can't catch up to the rest of the top four. But it is to some extent enjoyable and fun watching Manchester United again. Yeah, I mean they've certainly got their swagger back, Paul. I mean, that game on Sunday, under Mourinho, dare I say it would have been you know, a point at best, or maybe not even any. I think that's fair to say, yeah. Um, what's, what's been interesting is I know a lot of people have been talking about how uh, Solskjaer really is starting to earn the right to, to get the, the job full-time. Um, I kind of don't really agree with that because I, I'm not so sure really if he's tactically got enough to, to do things over the course of a full season. I think what he's really done is he's brought a new... Um, air of optimism to the club. He's, he's he's changed the dressing room atmosphere around, and he's got them focused on finishing the season strongly. Um, but I don't think he's really the right man to to take them beyond it. But like you say, this is the sort of game where under the the previous manager they clearly weren't happy and wouldn't have um, shown the same spirit. Uh, wouldn't have come away with a with a result. And he does. Solskjaer does deserve credit for that. Um, he's getting them fired up, and they are a team now who you don't want to play against at the moment. They're in form, with the exception of the Burnley result, um, which they, they grounded out and got a got a point from. Um, you know, they're, they're a team you don't want to face again, and they haven't been that for you know since Sir Alex left. And Matthew, talking of Mourinho, he really is whoring himself out to the highest bidder now, isn't he? I mean, a recent big money appearance on BN Sports, and now he's falling over at a Russian ice hockey game. Is he in danger of modern football just passing him by? You know, could he be yesterday's news if he's not back in the fold quite quickly? And who will take that punt? I, you took the words right right out of my mouth. I think he does need to get himself a job and get a job fast. Who's going to take him though? I think there is still an element of Jose. It, it is still Jose Mourinho, so he will probably be able to still command um, a fee for for a big club. I'm not. I'm not automatically relegating him now to you know upper mid table clubs or whatever league. So. I've no idea. Maybe he wants to go back to Italy. I have no idea what's going on at Juventus, but maybe there's an opening there in the summer. I don't know, but that wouldn't that wouldn't shock me if he ends up at a at a big name club. Maybe he wants to go to Germany. I know Bayern Munich are on a bit of a, a rocky patch at the moment. Maybe he sees himself as the man to turn around and get Bayern Munich back to their big their former glory. So um, uh, so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, I. I do think that he is still there for a big club, but he does have to be quick. I mean, if he went to Germany, he could emulate Carlo Ancelotti because Ancelotti's won titles in Italy, Germany, England and Spain. So I guess there's always that. But uh, whether he can sort of continue that accolade, I don't know. But actually, talking about Man United managers, it just reminded me of uh, Paul Lintz's comments. And Paul, what did you think <laughs> of those? Because he was trying to... He made the comments on Saturday and then tried to sort of awkwardly backpedal by writing in a really long article on the BBC Sport website, which didn't really do him any favours. Is there an element of truth or is it just like, Paul, just shut up, like, what are you doing? Like, what did you make of all that? I think it was a bit foot in mouth, wasn't it? Was, it was, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you know, it's strange with him. I, I thought, we're talking about 10 years ago, wasn't it, when he was um, lost in management, really? Um, at Premier League level, was it Blackburn? Uh, yeah, yeah, Blackburn. Blackburn that's right. Yep. Yeah, and um, all he had to do there was really steady the ship, um, 
but he, he didn't manage to do that. Um, so I'm not really sure that he would be able to, one, command the respect of the Man United dressing room and, and two, um, really have the, the the know-how to, to do it. I, I think he's, he's obviously trying to backtrack because he, he knows it was a daft thing to say. Well, exactly. I mean, let's be honest, Man United fans would never take to him as being manager for the simple fact that he went to Inter Milan and then played for Liverpool. So it's never going to yeah. really get our first gear, that idea, is it? But if we talk about the team that United beat, that was Leicester, Matthew, and they continue to blow hot and cold, more cold in all honesty, but um, they find themselves now in the bottom half of the table. With that in mind, is the pressure that's uh, being mounted on Claude Puel a bit more justified now? Um, no, I don't think any pressure is justified because we do still need to remind ourselves, yes, they won the title a couple of years ago, but it is still Leicester City. What more can you really really expect or or demand of them than to be than to be a mid-table Premier League club. So I I think some of it's unfair and, and I've never been a fan of this whole I want to I want to go to football to be entertained. Uh, I'm really I'm really one of those um get get a result or get whatever you sort of sort of uh, want out of a game. But by any means necessary. So if his football is boring but he's getting Leicester into mid-table in the Premier League that should be fine, but obviously I think some fans have been obviously spoiled by what Leicester did all those couple of years ago, and there's still this mindset of wanting to be wanting to be entertained. But I just don't think I just don't think the two are really. Uh, um, if you have to choose, if you have to choose one or the other, being and being entertained or getting results, then you have to be getting results. And you know, it's still mid it's still mid table Premier League. What what more should we be expecting Leicester to do? Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that Leicester's expectations have been raised to the point where, you know, anything outside a top four finish and the manager's not doing a good job, which is incredibly unfair because they've almost erased any memory they had pre-Premier League title. So it's like, what is Leicester's new level? And you'd have to sort of think this, really. So it's not something that Leicester fans will want to hear, but it is the harsh reality, you know. And dare I say, two or three wins, they could be back in the mix for Europa League place due to the sort of volatility of that mid-table bracket. And, you know, Leicester fans would love to be seventh and a place that is currently occupied by Wolves. So they swept Everton away at Goodison Park on Saturday. And, Paul, if you look on Twitter, it seems the value of silver is decreasing ever further. So, admittedly, it's not the best barometer of fan opinion, but it looks like the Toffees boss is starting to become a little unstuck. Yep, I completely agree. But I think Everton are also in a difficult position as a club. Yes, because you know they they tried so hard to get him and it upset Watford, didn't they? And it was all that kerfuffle. Um, and the fact that they made such a big deal about finally getting him and wanted to to sort of say we've turned a corner. We don't need Allardyce's sort of um, stale football. We just need someone who can try and express and take the club in a new direction. It's difficult for them to turn around now when he's not even had a full run. Uh, of the season and and get rid of him, um, but clearly uh, the fans aren't impressed. And do you know? I, I know this has been said by a few people, but when you watch Everton play now, uh, it does look like they're trapped between two styles. You know, the, where they, they they in a final third they they want to express themselves, and in some games it, it pays off really well, or in some moments of games it pays off really well. And there are other times where it looks like they, they haven't got a game plan. What's interesting is I, I saw a start, I think it was on Match of the Day, that you know, Silver, his first 12 games, uh, each of the, the clubs he's managed, 
uh, in England, he's got a win percentage of 46% in 12 games. But then the, the 12 that follow, it's down to 16% in some cases. And it's I think it's round about that now for, for Everton. But um, the, the thing with them is the squad that they've got, you could argue it, it's it's probably actually at its level, you know. Um, what there's there's a, a mixture of styles, and I think it until they want to buy into a particular um, style and have got the, the opportunity to to shift some deadwood, then they're still going to have these problems regardless of who's in charge. But there was a look on his face against uh, well, when the full time whistle went against Wolves, where you kind of think that he's started to feel the heat now. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, me and Matthew spoke about Marco Silva last week and we sort of had a shared consensus. I posed the question to Matthew, has Marco Silva got an air of Emperor's new clothes about him? That The fact that, you know, he's come in at Hull, did a few months. Admittedly, that's, you know, the part of the season he went in. Watford, four months or so, flirted with Everton and then, you know, he's not done a full season in the Premier League. And it's the mm. fact that he's a foreign manager and he has this sort of air about him. And he, you know, he doesn't seem too bad a bloke and everyone sort of bought into it. But he's not really doing anything to convince. You know, if this was an English manager, he wouldn't get the opportunity in the first place, and he certainly wouldn't get the time if Everton were in this situation. So why is Silva, you know, being treated as or being lauded as this bright young thing when he's not actually done anything to really warrant that tag? Yeah, he's a false dawn, really. Yes. Isn't he? Um, yeah, and and you know he's supposed to be a, a great tactician. That's right. But watching his teams play, I, I I'm yet to be convinced. Well, yes, I mean, and I think Jermaine Jenner said it on Match of the Day. He said that he doesn't understand what Everton are. You know, there's two schools of thought of what they're trying to be, and neither's working. They're almost canting each other out. So, um, yeah. for where they are, I think you're absolutely right. They're all, it's almost par. They're not underachieving because they're not, they just haven't got the quality of the squad at the moment. I think it's going to be a transitional period for the club as a whole. But, Matthew, they didn't spend too much, if anything, in January. I can't sort of look at the notes at the moment but is that perhaps the Everton board hedging their bets and thinking we don't want to pump too much more money in just in case it goes further south and we've got to get a new manager in in the summer um, there is part of that but there is part of and this is something you're going to be familiar with aren't they looking to move to a new stadium in the very near future yes, I guess are they, they start are they, are they start are they start to stockpile I just want to flip it to Flip it just for one second and go into the go into the other dugout. You mentioned about Mauricio Pochettino maybe being in terms for manager of the year. If if Nuno Santo gets keeps Wolves in seventh place, yes. he's nailed on for manager of the year. And I don't want to hear a word. I don't want to hear a word against it. What he's done with that Wolves squad has been fantastic this season. Oh no, I couldn't argue with that, mate. I mean, like I said last week, if Pochettino did go elsewhere in the summer, I'd want Tottenham to be knocking on the, the Molyneux door the next morning because I think Nuno Spirito Santo has done an amazing job and I think you know we said last week that it's either he leads a project somewhere else or Wolves could be that project that just keeps going further up the table because to be honest Paul there's not a lot stopping him over the next sort of few years if this trajectory keeps going No they've got a, a fantastic squad they've got a, a reasonably uh, modern ground in, in one end haven't they and I know the other bits are still being worked on but it's an impressive stadium on the lease we've got a good solid fan base there's room to build um, the football that Nuno's got them playing is is just it. and I, we played them in the cup last year when they were still um, you know they, they're still a championship team and they were finding their feet but the way that he'd got them all organised as a unit 
everyone knew what the role was. And when a certain player was caught out of position, one of his teammates knew what the job would be to fill in. And he's carried that on this season. All right, they had a bit of a lull, didn't they, after making a fairly bright start? I think it was around October time they had a bit of a lull. Um, but the, what we're seeing now is that they've stuck to the game plan and it's really paying off. Um, it, that Jimenez up front, he's, he's really found his, uh, his uh, goal-scoring form of late. But it's not just that, that the, the business they've done is clever as well. Neves uh, in midfield, I know quite a lot of people have got fed up with him in the fantasy football stakes because he's not getting as many goals as they like, but he is running that midfield and he's doing it beyond his years. He's only about 21, 22, isn't he? Yep. But he's he's playing with such a, a cool head. Um, City were actually looking at him last summer, but they sort of died off, um, I think, after... Wolves turned around and said that if, if they were to sell him, they'd want £100 million pound for him. Um, and they're every right to, to put that price tag on his head because he's looking the real deal. Uh, but it's all down to the way their manager's got all of those players understanding their jobs and buying into the, the, the team ethic of working for one another. I mean, if anyone's going to break the big six, I reckon it's Wolves over the next few years. I don't think Everton tries, they might. I think they've had their crap and I think they've been been usurped. But um, let's just quickly sort of wrap up the rest of the Premier League in the what sort of five, ten minutes we've got left. Um, Burnley, Matthew, they finally got a penalty after 68 league matches. I mean, how much of that in terms of not getting a spot kick is Sean Dyche having his tinfoil hat on, you know, conspiracy theories and all that? More importantly, what on earth is Peter Crouch doing in the Premier League again at 38? Oh, no, I think we just we discussed this last week, the fact that Peter Crouch, A, the fact he's only 30, he's 38, he seems to have been around, he seems to have been around for a lot more. I expected him to be in his 40s. But back to the initial point, um, yeah, I think that there. I think there is some element of of the tin hat. Of, you know, it's it's only Burnley, so whether or not they get the the officials on their side down to, um, you know, as much as the big clubs. I think there. I think there is some element to that, but not as much as Sean Dyche would have you believe. But it is. It is. It is one of the fun stats. Everyone, everyone likes it. You know, when was the last time X penalty was given? Like when was the last? I think May night went seven years. I think it was without giving away a penalty at the Stretford end. It is one of those fun stats you like to bring up, and now that's that's over. Uh, we need to look forward to whatever the next one is. Yeah, unfortunately, it's just earmarked in history now. But I guess, Paul, is there something to be made of the fact that you've got to at least create chances to get at least in that sort of penalty sort of remit, I guess? I mean, I, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but is there something to be said that if you're not creating chances, then you're not going to get anywhere near a penalty anyway? Yeah, absolutely. And I felt uh, watching that match back as well that they they were lucky not to get one early on as well. Yes, was actually it, Barnes, was it wasn't Barnes? it? That's right. Yeah, but for diving, and it was never a dive. Um, you've got to get yourself in the positions to give the referee something to think about, exactly like you said. And I don't think there's any agenda against Burnley from the hierarchy. I think if they're not in, in the box and they're not causing uh, the defenders any worry, then they're not going to be in with a shout for a penalty. And also, probably you've got to get the ball on the ground a bit more. Just the fact that they cope like an aerial game. Yeah. You're not really going to get the yeah. noise unless it's errant handballs, are you? So maybe that's some sort of uh, food for thought as well. But also, around the Premier League, uh, Watford and Brighton play that stalemate, so we won't bother with that one. Uh, Cardiff got the better of Bournemouth in what was certainly an emotional evening at the Cardiff Stadium, while Spurs left it very late again to get the better of Newcastle at Wembley. Something you can hear more in full, or in full, should I say, on the Spurs podcast that I also host. That's also out so the last bit of admin, just got played the Bills, and that's because it's time for our Loser Pool Picks of the Week. So, Matthew, um, you went for your own team to win last week. Probably a bit of a, 
you know, a guide, a misguided punch, shall I say. What have you got for me this week? Who's your guaranteed loser? Um, I think we sort of talked about last week how, you know, uh, and, you know and you mentioned earlier the um, uh, uh, effect or the uh, cap. Um, so let me start that again. Um, we mentioned last week the idea of like the wounded animal Chelsea going up against Bournemouth and having to uh, fire back against Huddersfield. And I think in a similar vein of form, um, Liverpool have got Bournemouth this week and they're going to want to really bounce back um, after their game against West Ham. So I'm saying AFC Bournemouth are the guaranteed losers this week. Good shout. And Paul, what have you got for me? Well, I'm hoping Bournemouth can pull something out of the bag at Anfield, to be honest with you. Um, but I'm going to go with Huddersfield, and I think it might be overthinking it, but I'm expecting Arsenal to be fired up to take advantage of a very poor Huddersfield out- outfit. Yeah, I think that's a very solid shout. In that case, I'm going to go for I'm going to go for Chelsea, actually. Bit of a risky one, but I think that um, Pep is not going to want to give Chelsea a confidence boost going to the Carabao Cup final. You know, if Chelsea win two in a row, that's going to sort of boost their ego even further for Wembley trip. I think lessons will be learnt from the game at Stamford Bridge. Um, obviously, there's a lot more ride on this one. I just think City have sort of... Now they have Fernandinho as well. Different proposition. So more risk. Not You know, I don't get any more reward for it. But I'm going to put my money on Chelsea to lose away at City on Sunday. So just to recap, Matthew's gone for Bournemouth to lose away at Liverpool. Uh, Paul's gone for Huddersfield to lose at home to Arsenal, and I've gone for Chelsea to lose away at Manchester City. And they are our loser pool picks of the week. And that is just about full time. So uh, last bit of admin after the loser pool picks is to thank my guests. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks ever so much for coming on. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Thank you very much. I've had a great time, yes. Excellent. Let's uh, make sure we do it again soon, definitely. And Matthew, like I said, um, off show thanks ever so much coming in at the uh, i guess the 11th hour or so perfect super sub work we'll definitely do this again soon i hope no worries absolute pleasure to be on as it, as it always is excellent and it just leaves me to say that my name's dan tracy this is the real football cast in association with loser paul and until next time goodbye Podcast Network.